if you go out on a, on a lake with a kayak and you're paddling along with a kayak and it's, it's stable, uh, as long as you keep your balance, you can tip it a little bit either way and it comes back to a nice stable position. But if you tip it just a wee bit too much to one side, it flips all the way over and, and dumps you under the water. And there are parts of the Earth system which behave in the same way. We could cross that tipping point. We don't know where that lies, but it's conceivable that in the next couple of decades, we could cross that tipping point. So the concern a lot of us Earth system scientists have is that sort of like a row of dominoes, if you start tipping the first couple of dominoes, you could tip the entire row of dominoes because they are linked. Hi, I'm Andy Horvath. And I'm Susie Fraser. Welcome to Eavesdrop on Ideas. We explore themes through the lenses of artists, authors and academics. Think of it as a historian, a social scientist and an economist walk into a bar. Or a scientist, a philosopher and an artist get stuck in a lift. And you happen to be there too. Second level. Every episode is inspired by art. Together in this episode, we explore tipping points, influencing ecology and the ecology of influence. Influencer marketing is extremely popular now. That's never been more true in this day and age of of social media. As long as it's sticky and there are people out there to spread that idea, then according to the theory, it reaches a tipping point much like a snowball eventually rolls faster down the hill and gets bigger at the same time. So there's that point where something becomes exponential and really takes off. That's really what we look at in the market now when we try and explain why things go viral. The voices you heard in the episode introduction are Will Steffen and Brent Coker. You'll hear more from them. Andy, I went to the Venice Biennale last year, which for anyone who doesn't know is like the Olympics for art, held every two years in Venice. And I saw Margaret Wertheim's Crochet Coral Reef project on display. It had a majestic and slightly eerie presence among the other artworks. It comprises bundles of intricately woven and brightly coloured textures, taking the form of corals and displayed in glass vitrines. It's a collaborative project, having been crocheted by thousands of people from all over the world, and made in collaboration with her sister, Christine Wertheim. The project started off as a study of curved surfaces, or non-Euclidean geometry. It has these amazing wavy, curly shapes, which she calls hyperbolic geometry, which was inspired by Einstein's theory of general relativity, where space is curved. I was immediately drawn to it at the Biennale, not only because of the wonderful colours and handcrafted textures, but also the associated fragility of corals in our contemporary ecosystems. It really stood out as an important work. Wow, Susie, that must have been amazing. Did you know I was an avid crocheter and I had a mini version in a shoebox at my office desk back when the project started over a decade ago. I loved making these so-called hyperbolic surfaces. You can sort of think of hyperbolic surfaces as the opposite of a sphere. It's a negative curvature. Oh, that's so great to hear. We both have experience of this artwork then. Here is more about the project from Margaret Wertheim, science writer and artist. It so happens that these negative curvature hyperbolic surfaces are realised in lots of things in nature, including corals 
and lettuce leaves and cactuses. I was just simply interested in teaching people to make these structures because it turns out that you can make these things most easily with crochet. Margaret started the crochet project with her twin sister, Christine. When you start playing around and don't do mathematically precise ones, they stop looking like mathematical models and they start to look like organic things, particularly like corals. When my sister and I invented this project in 2005, we had two reasons we wanted to do it. One was because we wanted to communicate to people about this amazing non-Euclidean geometry, which does underlie general relativity. But then you start making coral reefs, and then we're starting to talk about, well, why are we doing coral reefs? We wanted to do an artistic response to the fact that the Great Barrier Reef was being devastated by global warming. I should say, Chrissy and I grew up in Brisbane, so the Great Barrier Reef looms large in our consciousness. The project brings together mathematics, science, reflections on global warming, and handicraft. We wanted our show or our installations to have that feeling that, as it were, science pedagogy can itself be an aesthetic triumph. In our last episode, we explored the image of an event horizon around a black hole. It's where time and space bend, where even light itself cannot escape the pull of gravity. While it may seem very far away, Planet Earth is actually facing its own event horizon, its own tipping point, maybe its own point of no return. We humans are now the dominant force uh, changing the way our planet functions. And we're now on a rapidly changing trajectory into something new and different, which is still unfolding. The fact that we are now in a world or in a planet that is now dominated not by the natural forces that change the earth, but we are now in an earth, in a world that's dominated by human pressures. They are overtaking natural uh, sources of change. Referring to what is called the Anthropocene is Will Steffen. He is an emeritus professor at the Australian National University who spent his career working with colleagues around the world on issues of earth system science and the science of climate change. Ever since the Industrial Revolution, humans have unlocked the carbon dioxide in fossil fuels for energy, eventually changing our atmosphere and creating climate change. Not to mention that in the mid-20th century, we humans have also polluted the planet with plastics, radioactivity and other contaminants. So is the Anthropocene an event horizon or even a series of tipping points? Look, I think we're at a point where we are approaching the first of these tipping points. Coral reefs, we value coral reefs for the beautiful, rich biodiversity. They're the most uh, biodiverse, rich marine ecosystems. In the last five years, we've seen three mass bleaching events. That does not allow enough time in between bleaching events for the reef to recover. And with temperatures certain to rise for the next couple of decades, it looks like we will see the end of the Great Barrier Reef. A good example of a system that has a tipping point is the Arctic sea ice. That's the ice that floats uh, on the surface of the Arctic Ocean uh, up around the North Pole. 
Now that's very important because during their summertime, which is occurring now, they get sunlight uh, 24 hours a day at the North Pole. And that sea ice is important because it reflects that sunlight and keeps it cool up there. But if you lose that ice, then the darker seawater starts absorbing more. That increases the regional temperature, which of course causes the more ice to melt. That uncovers more dark ocean water and you see that the um, feedback process going on. So you pass a point of no return and you're going to lose the Arctic sea ice no matter what. And we think we're very close actually to that particular tipping point. And you see big ecosystems like the Amazon rainforest or the big boreal forest. Those are the big northern forests across Canada, Siberia, and so on. That if they are stressed too much, sometimes by a combination of deforestation like in the Amazon, but also climate change, which is reducing rainfall over the Amazon, that may hit a tipping point where it burns a lot of forest fires and it irreversibly converts that forest into a savanna or an open woodland. And the same thing is true with the Earth system. When you start tipping some of these tipping elements, they could act like dominoes influencing other ones until we could possibly reach a point of no return where the Earth system is going to move into a a much hotter, much less biodiverse rich state. So that's the real concern we have out there. Multiple tipping points could indeed start a cascade that would take the Earth system out of human control Even if we get our emissions down, even if we stop deforestation, we could not stop the transition of the Earth as a whole into an entirely new state. My prognosis is is that we have not yet reached a point where we're going to initiate this tipping cascade. We don't know for sure where that might lie. It could lie, in my view, as low as 1.5 degree temperature rise, or it could not activate it till between 2 and 3. We simply don't know. And of course, the real question, I think, is where is this leading? We don't know, and we can't know because it depends on decisions that our societies make or are in the process of making or will make in the future. So I think that's really the critical question that we face is just where is the Anthropocene going? So the way I like to look at it is we're at a very critical fork in the road now. So I think we need, as we go forward in this decade, sort of a, a real deep conversation amongst those of us who are in scholarly activities and indeed civil society and governance as well to help develop systems that can steer us onto a stabilized earth pathway and keep us away from these tipping cascades into an economy that actually is designed to maintain and regenerate the biosphere. The alternative is what I call hothouse earth, and that would make it much, much more difficult for human societies to thrive. It would make it much more difficult for most of the ecosystems we value today to survive and thrive and so on. And that's uh, the sort of scenario where you could not rule out the fact that our contemporary societies could collapse under that sort of pressure. So I think we're approaching in this decade, the decade of the 2020s, this fork in the road as to which direction we're going to take the Earth system. We asked Will Steffen if he had seen a memorable creative artwork about climate change that really resonated with him. There was a very nice creative work done by, uh, of all people, the finance people for the country of Singapore. And it had some beautiful music behind it, a bit of David Attenborough in his usual uh, dulcet tones warning us about we are running out of time. But the images of particularly sea level rise, which is important for Singapore, but also the images at the end of humans out there doing things differently. We are a visual species. And that really struck me, the, the, the combination of not very much text, certainly very, very little science, 
but some very, very uh, beautiful images of what the Earth could be if we changed the way we went. You can listen to the extended interview with Will Steffen about ideas for change on our show's website. Susie, do you reckon evidence-based conversations, decisions and ideas and actions that work will only work if our governments and businesses are on board? So let's go and explore the idea of what makes ideas catch on and what makes ideas popular and stick. Malcolm Gladwell, author and now podcaster, asked the same question and wrote a book called The Tipping Point in the year 2000. So let's understand tipping points from a social science, economic and marketing point of view. So Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping Point, it's one of the first deep looks actually into this idea of what makes ideas spread. And when he wrote this book, the internet was really in its infancy and this idea of social media wasn't as big and prominent as it is now. So this was one of the really iconic works, actually, into this idea of what causes fads or what we call now viral content. That's Professor Brent Coker, a consumer psychologist and lecturer of marketing at the University of Melbourne. He wrote a book called Going Viral in 2016 on brand marketing in the digital age, influencer dynamics and customer engagement. It's kind of the tipping point 2.0. So... There are three main elements to what makes something become extremely popular, according to Malcolm Gladwell. The first is the law of the few, which is essentially word of mouth. These are people who tell others. We call this sharing nowadays. He outlines this uh, law of few as consisting essentially of three different types of people. Mavens, who are, according to Malcolm Gladwell, people who who tell others about an idea or a product or a thing or a situation or whatever it is. And then there are the second type who like helping other people, sharing useful information is one. The second type is uh, connectors. And these are what we nowadays more commonly term influencers, like, you know, Instagram influencers or, you know, uh, Facebook influencers, people who have a lot of followers. Of course, back then, social media didn't really exist, but um, it's the same type of concept. These people who are extremely popular and, and tend to have a following and people tend to copy what they're doing and what they say and listen to what they say and so on. Uh, and then finally, salesmen. We call this push marketing, really, which is broadcasting a message Uh, There are various ways to increase the persuasion of that message using emotions, for example. So the basis of Malcolm's theory is absolutely correct and hasn't been disproven, but the mechanisms behind what causes them have kind of evolved. And it seems that consumers have become increasingly jaded over the years, particularly over the last decade, it seems, in terms of traditional advertising. We have a good understanding now that consumers tend to trust other consumers more than they trust the brand. So, for example, if most people, before they buy anything worth over $100, they go online and they read the reviews of what others are saying. And so for that reason, concepts like influences on social media are extremely important part of the marketing mix. And then there are two other factors, according to Malcolm Gladwell, that increase the chances of an idea or something spreading quickly and becoming well-known. The stickiness factor, which is 
something unique about the phenomenon that makes it stick in the minds of people. The stickiness factor, nowadays we call that affinity. So something that's missing from his book in this is this idea of ultra-relevancy. And so as marketers nowadays, we're really looking at how do we access people's value systems? Because that's where this idea of affinity and caring about something lies. There's always ideas that people hold that they they dearly hold on to. They they really care about it. They're willing to go out there and protest for it. You know, it's, it's that kind of thing. And so marketers are often trying to find out, well, what are those and how can we appease those in a way? So let me give you an example. So let's say Billabong, a, a, an Aussie brand up there in the Gold Coast, their typical style of advertisement is a, a somebody surfing in a wave uh, in a barrel, as we call them, or a tube or whatever. But that kind of stuff doesn't go viral. It doesn't really get shared. But Quicksilver, their competitor, came along. They had a, an image that was extremely similar. The only difference was they did a bit of homework to figure out what's the source of affinity for their target market, which is surfers. And they discovered that one thing that surfers spend a lot of time doing is talking about locations that they've surfed. So that's a great topic of conversation if you're a surfer. You know, a lot of time is spent talking about, oh, have you been to Mundaka in Spain? That, that's a left-hander off a point, and it's fantastic. You know, and that, that's the kind of conversations they have. And so, well, okay, that has to be a feature in our advertisement. And the other thing surfers really cared about was the environmental health of the ocean. And so they combined those two, and they had an image of somebody surfing through the barrel of a wave in an iconic location, in this case it was Java in Indonesia, and showing the amount of pollution that was in the water. You could see it floating in this uh, barrel of the wave that the surfer was surfing through. And that shared like crazy. And lastly, the power of context, how that phenomenon spreads or, or emerges in society matters and he really goes into quite a lot of detail at this point malcolm gladwell he, he's uh he's a new yorker for example and he, he noticed that neighborhoods that were neglected he uses the example of broken windows that didn't get fixed in the neighborhood that tended to increase the crime in the neighborhood and make the neighborhood deteriorate faster than if a neighborhood had the windows fixed quickly so the power of context is really the spark that kicks everything off as long as it's sticky and there are people out there from the law of few to spread that idea then according to the theory it reaches a tipping point much like a snowball eventually rolls faster down the hill and gets bigger at the same time so there's that point where something becomes exponential and really takes off timing has a lot to do with it and so we we care a lot about timing nowadays one of the shortcuts to timing for marketers is basing content on the back of what the media is talking about and whatever people care about at any time this is all wrong i shouldn't be up here this began actually since greta thunberg the um, environmentalist the from sweden the, um, young girl started advocating for climate change and in marketing, we call this the Greta effect because we've, we've really seen a strong flow-on effect from that in, in the way that brands are behaving. All you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. 
How dare you? In the Effie Awards, for example, that's our big marketing awards ceremony each year. I was having a look at this. There's probably 60% of the gold award winners are using some sort of strategy that plays on the idea of social consciousness or environmental consciousness or, or, or something about an initiative that's really giving back to the community. Another one is um, Carrefour supermarkets in France. So they're a large supermarket chain and they found that they were slipping in the ratings. Uh, they wanted to improve that. And they noticed that there was a restriction in the number of crop strains that were available for them because they wanted to sell a wider variety of fruits and vegetables in terms of different types. And they discovered that there's a, there's a crop schedule in France which makes it illegal to grow quite a few different types of fruits and vegetables there. Uh, and that schedule was originally developed to protect the food supply in France, given that the ones that were legal were more likely drought resistant and pest resistant and so on. So what had happened over the years is that a lot of crop strains had actually become extinct or very near extinction because it was illegal to grow them. They wanted to change that. So they set up something called the black supermarket where they were growing and selling these illegal crop strains illegally. And the public loved it. Then they went for a battle in the courts to get the legislation changed. Then they won. But that shot them to the top of the list in terms of favorability with, with consumers as well. It's good to see a win-win, even if by seizing an opportunity of happenstance. But many brands and companies still make money by creating need and desire and by default harm. This thing called um, psychological obsolescence and functional obsolescence. So that, they sound like big, nasty words, but essentially what that is, is brands try to persuade consumers that they need something new when they don't. <laughs> so fashion brands, right? So your shirt needs to be replaced. We've got a new model or, or cars is often used. You know, you, you need a new car or um, technical obsolescences. Um, you know, mobile phones, for example, at one time you could change the battery, you could replace the battery. Well, now you can't. And actually they use special screws to make it very difficult for you to open the phone because they don't want you fixing it. They want you to buy a brand new one and they want you to swap it. So these types of issues are causing a, a problem actually for many brands because the communities of people who care about that stuff is growing steadily. I was quite surprised at the number of communities that are growing and forming allegiances and all against brands. So I wouldn't be surprised if that trend continues as consumers become more and more suspicious of brands' behavior in terms of their contribution to environmental problems. Thanks go to Margaret Wertheim, Will Steffen and Brent Coker. The full unedited interviews of all guests are available on our webpage. Thanks go to the University of Melbourne and the Centre of Visual Art. Your hosts and researchers are Dr Susie Fraser and Dr Andy Horvath. Our sound engineer is Archie Cuthbertson. The producer is Dr. Andy Horvath. This podcast was recorded in August 2020. Hey Susie, 
Did you ever see the 2011 American thriller movie called Contagion? Andy, not a favourite of mine. It's about a worldwide pandemic, which we are kind of living it right now. But I do know the movie really drove home RO, the reproduction number that is how many people one person can infect, creating a mousetrap cascade. Yes, it did. And the movie really also drove home the idea of the epidemiological phrase, spreads like a virus, which is where we get the business phrase, viral marketing from. You know, Susie, listening to our guests about the ecology of influence and the influence of ecology reminded me of two things. One, a useful quote, I don't know who said it, but it describes the Greta effect. Courage is contagious. When a brave person takes a stand, the spines of others are often stiffened. And two, a poster outside my local cafe that says, kindness is contagious. <laughs>